Welcome to Film Frequency, the fortnightly film podcast hosted by Mark Whiteside, Ross Cairndove and myself, Corey McKinney, where we unpack our thoughts on the cinematic landscape of motion picture entertainment. From indie flicks to blockbuster, international cinema to animation, we leave no genre untouched as we analyse what we love about storytelling on the big and small screen. On this week's podcast, we welcome our first guest, Matthew Hamilton. Matthew is a film studies graduate from Queen's University Belfast, a fan of movie-making heavyweights such as David Lynch and Alfred Hitchcock, and joins us to break down his thoughts on Christopher Nolan's controversial 2020 blockbuster, Tenant. Furthermore, on this week's podcast, we will introduce two new sections. Firstly, Around the World, a segment where we highlight a particular cinematic delight of world cinema. This week, Ross will be chatting about Park Chan-wook's 2002 film, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Also new to Film Frequency is Under the Radar, an opportunity for us to bring to light a film that we believe deserves more recognition than it received. This week on Under the Radar, I will be chatting about Trey Edward Schultz's 2019 film, Waves. So, lots to look forward to on this week's podcast. First up, let's check in with Matthew as we open up the floor to discuss Christopher Nolan's Tenant. Right, so welcome back to another episode of the Film Frequency. Um, we're joined today by Mr. Matthew Hamilton. We're going to be chatting with Matthew about mainly about Tenant, Christopher Nolan's Tenant, which came out in the summer. Um, which uh, I think Matthew had mixed opinions on it when it first came out, and much like a lot of people did. Um, I think I quite liked it at the start, but then I completely changed my mind. It went from like being, ah, oh, I didn't mind that till once we all analysed it. I think I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Um, but I don't want to be too, um, I don't want to be too harsh on it. We're going to open up the floor to everyone, and we're going to talk a little bit about it and um, see if we can work out just exactly what went wrong, or maybe one of us thinks what went right. But we'll see. Because I don't think we've talked. I haven't talked to Ross much about this film. I know me and Mark have broken it down. It's it's scenes by scene at most points. And, but yeah, Matthew, I know me and you chatted about it a wee bit. Um, yeah. yeah. It'd be nice to deep dive into it and see what you really thought. Well, yeah, like I say, I, I honestly, at the beginning of it, when it when it kept that sort of linear fashion of narrative, when it kept going on and it was it was seemed okay, it was like, I can definitely understand what's going on, what the plot's going to be. But then there was like these times where they were sitting at a table and Michael Caine would be talking to him, and it was just like name dropping. Like I couldn't understand what the, who they were talking about, what they were trying to address. The plot then just started changing completely. I was just like, "What's going on here?" I'd agree. Um, the, even and, the plot is hard to follow. Like if you take the time travel stuff out of it, I couldn't even follow the plot. I felt like that's what they were doing. They were putting the time traveling aspect in, and the whole reversion of time to sort of like um, almost. I don't know, just sort of take your mind off it. Like as if you were holding a rattle to a baby. You were just sort of like, you know, the baby's like, hang on a wee second, and then you rattle the baby. The, and the, oh, okay. I just look at this for a bit, like as if it was just thrown in for, and I don't think anybody really started to understand the plot. They were just so focused on this whole idea of time travel and it was just sort of, it ruined it for me completely. When did you watch the film, Matthew? I watched, as soon as it came into the cinema, because uh, I, I didn't watch any trailers for it, because I, I, that sort of person i watch trailers for films that much anymore if i want to see a film i just see it for what it is because i feel like a lot of trailers will just spoil everything so i went into it you know with a empty mind looking into this film thinking it was going to be brilliant and i was really sort of disappointed when when Um, this got released was this the first film you saw back in cinemas 
when it they was. Were... I think it was. No, I, I may have seen. I think I did see Invisible Man actually, which I am not going to lie, I really, really enjoyed. Um, and I seen that. I think that was like I think relatively the same time. I think just before maybe, but um, that's the other thing I want to actually talk about with Tenant. The idea that they sort of were they threw the film out there and they were really putting all their eggs in one basket with Tenant because they were hoping that Tenant was going to be the, the film that brought everybody into the cinema that was really going to make people think, oh, this is a brilliant blockbuster film. I'm going to go see this and that all the chairs will be packed and they'll be making lots of money from it. And it just turned out that they weren't. And I think people were coming out of the cinema not even telling their friends to go see it because it just wasn't worthwhile for them. They didn't understand the plot. So then I found what was really funny was they actually, Warner Bros, then I think it was Warner Bros, they are the production company, I think. Yeah. They started tweeting saying, um, see Tenant for, for a second time for maximum effect. And that's the first time I think I've ever seen a production company literally say to people, please go back to the cinema and watch our film mm -hmm. because it's really doing that bad. Like, I'd never seen that before. It was really strange that they were like... Home it sort of reeks of desperation a wee bit, doesn't it? Absolutely. And yeah. so it, it did ruin it. And also, Corey, I would like Corey to go on about this because he's just summed it up perfectly about Tenant. Was, it was good right until we got to the middle and then we just had this overbearing soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... Um... The sound, the sound editing and stuff with it, I'm not quite sure how it ever passed quality control um, by the end of the thing. How, how it got, how it got to, to be put out, because there's a lot of scenes in there that are just completely inaudible. And that's just, I mean, there's one thing to make a, a, a film that doesn't make sense, but if your technical qualities aren't up to the right spec, there's, there, you know, there's, there's a certain level of quality control that will go through multiple, multiple times before it's even picture locked and put out. And the fact that it's still got, it's almost like, I think you said this, Mark. It was almost like a. It summed up twenty twenty in 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 cinema. You know, it was like a twenty twenty version of cinema. Like twenty twenty was such a shit show, and then the cinematic equivalent of it. But like the fact that they just put it out there with a soundtrack that wasn't mixed properly with the audio is a mess. See, the audio bit. Apparently, you were saying about it. I would have to go through many many people and quality control before it reaches film. I think the reason why it did was because Christopher Nolan really pushed that sound mix. So he likes the fact that um, there's scenes where you can't hear over, you can't hear over the, the soundtrack or over this, the, the background noise, basically, um, to try and create this more visceral, realistic take. But at the same time, in my opinion, a film is a film. It's not real life at the end of the day. It's there for entertainment. So at the expense of the individual from hearing it, I'm not sure if that's worth it to create this like realistic idea that, yeah, okay, if you're on this massive speeding yacht, you wouldn't be able to hear the person beside you, but, you know, then don't have the scene, you know, put it somewhere else. You're not, we're not on that yacht, if that makes sense. You know, I, I don't think it's worth the expense of it. And I think it works. Apparently he's done this in all his films, basically. If you go back, you can see uh, shots or scenes where, you can't really hear the audio very clearly, um, but it's been very um, exaggerated on Tenant. And if you're going to do it in other films, it's fine if it's not key scenes with plot development in them. But if it happens in plot development in a very tricky film to follow as it is, I mean, that that to me is is definitely unnecessary. So I, I hope he learns from this. 
Couldn't if agree more. I think he's done this. He has done it countless times with his other films, like Inception in particular. There's a, a scene where um, I think it's Cobb at the very beginning starts this dream sequence to try and to get Saito to actually take him up for this job. I think it is something like that, where Saito actually starts to realize that it is his own dream or something. Um, but at one point, the bricks and everything has fallen down in this temple that they're in, and it's beginning to fall down. And basically, I think, what do you call her? Is it Maul? She's talking to Saito. He can't hear a word. She's apparently she's saying something. He was close, very close, but you couldn't hear it because the sound of everything crashing down and the soundtrack, which is unreal, the soundtrack is brilliant in Inception, but it was all sort of convoluted. And I told people when they went and seen Tenant that that scene on the boat, exactly the same thing as what you said, Mark. If it's a plot, you know, something that you need to hear from the plot, you could have taken that out of there. You didn't need to have that scene. Um, you could have put it into a completely different environment without that. It didn't add anything to the film, that the idea of them being on the speedboat. There was no need for it. It was style, sort of, really. Yeah. yeah, it felt like they threw it in just for, like, you know, sort of, I don't know, more drama. But I said that people that want to see it, I said, I'll give you a fiver if you can say, like, you can pick out one word that someone says during that whole scene, because I just I couldn't hear a thing. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, I would. One thing I would say about the audio that even if you could hear those scenes, I still wouldn't understand the film probably much probably. more. Than I did. So like, um, I guess that's the silver lining if if you could pull one out of that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think audio is a problem with it. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think I watched it and Corey watched it also as the first film since um, cinemas were reopening after that first lockdown. And it was it and at the time it and Dune were both scheduled to be released in 2020. And they were the two films that I was like, these will, I can't wait to watch these. These are my highly anticipated films. And then I think Dune had moved into next year and I was like, right, it's all on Tenet. And uh, yeah, very, very disappointed. I am the biggest Nolan fan. Like I harp on about him all the time. And uh, this is, for me easily his worst film i i kind of describe it like um you know christopher nolan pushes his audiences for um you know he doesn't treat them like idiots and he pushes them and challenges them to follow you know hard concepts but he always straddles that line between you know complex and you know a masterpiece and just absurd and really hard to follow like he straddles that line perfectly like he pushes it but not too far Whereas with Tenant, I felt like he bulldozed past that wall mm -hmm. way into the other section, not even close. Um, I have seen people on YouTube that dissect this whole film and you do get little Easter eggs and things like uh, the, the word Tenant and then Seador, I think, is the villain in it. And like the words, how they're linked together. And it, it, I can't even remember where it's traced from. But I mean, clearly there was work went into this, but when you put it on uh, film, I, it just didn't translate. I'm sure in Christopher Nolan's head, it made loads of sense. Like, I don't think this was a director going, you know what, I'll just kind of keep going and going and going, and then the audience won't know, and then they won't realize that I haven't got this together. Like, I think he probably knew what he was doing and stuff. It just, it was too complex the way it came across. Yeah, so um, the Sator Square is a two-dimensional word square containing a five-word Latin palindrome. So it's something the earliest example of the square dates back to Pompeii 
So there is some sort of, there's a little bit of a nerdy fact for you. Um, I've sort of been listening to all of you talk about it and stuff. I think this for me stems from my bigger problem with Chris Nolan that's been for a number of years now where I get the impression. So I don't know, what did you all think of Interstellar? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great. Very good film. Favorites of all time. Yeah. Okay, I can't, I can't stand it. So um, that's maybe interesting. I just think that, but he, for me, I think it's that very fine line between like an R tour director and being like a mainstream director, and I think he sort of straddles it quite well with certain films like Interception. Is I guess for like a standard blockbuster experience, this is quite out there, but it works. Whereas I just get the impression that for the last couple of years, well, maybe not so much Dunkirk, but certainly Interstellar and now this, it seems to me like he's trying to add increasing layers of complexity to his stories and to the narrative that I just don't think translates particularly well to like a big blockbuster piece like this. I just watching the movie, like I didn't hate it. There's things about it I liked and I'm sure we'll come on to some of those later, but for me, I think it just, it's like he's just trying too hard just to become like, make the story more and more complex and convoluted that only the diehard like cinephiles are going to st stick with him until the end. And even then, I think the big problem as well is you're right that this was the big movie that came out after this entire COVID shitstorm that we're all in. So everyone was sort of like, oh, this is going to bring people back to the cinema. And I think it's just... He's shot it too far and it's just gone too niche that um, it just didn't have the appeal that, to get. Because, right, like you said, in, in, like go back to in, um, Inception, that was, what, 2010? Yeah. 2010, like, like, let's say about 10 years ago. The number of people that you probably, whenever you went to see that, you either were told about it by somebody else or you went and told people, or both, as mostly was the case, that film spread by word of mouth through so many different people. And I think, yeah, the big problem with this is it's just like, if you, you're watching it and it's, it's so difficult to follow along with that you don't really want to share it with anyone else. It just doesn't really, I don't know. Yeah, this did make quite a lot of money, though. It did, like, yeah. it still made, I mean, for a Christopher Nolan film, it was weak, but it still made by far the most money of any film that's been released in the pandemic. Oh, um, mm -hmm. It's currently sitting at 363 million mm -hmm. and it made, now it didn't do well in the U S I think it only made under 60 million, but it's made over 300 million internationally. So, um, but again, I think a lot of that is um, the reputation that Christopher Nolan's built up. That's what those people came for really. Um, and I think you might see a bit of a dent, that that's caused in his next film. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. There's very few people who would have, if you've seen Christopher Nolan's films before and you generally like them, and then you know you hear about Tenant being ridiculous and quite hard to understand, you probably still go see it. You know, if you if you had all the information that you knew about Tenant, there would be no option of you not seeing it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's probably still, I would say, a lot of that money, as you say, is built off the back of his. Um, people want to see his film, regardless if it's, you know, fucking the best. Yeah, and I think part of it as well is, you know, when someone says the problem with it is it's too complicated, most times when you come out of a film, you go, that was that was crap, or it just wasn't, it was boring, or, you know, that's normally the complaint, and therefore people wouldn't go and see it. 
of that complaint. But if your complaint is, it's too complicated to follow. In my reaction, I'd kind of be like, well, I do quite like complicated, complex films. You know, maybe I could understand this, you know, like you'd almost want to give it your give it a go yourself. You wouldn't. Well, almost... I, that's why I agree with you, Mark, because I, whenever I went and seen it, I came out of it, not thinking that it was a rubbish film at all. But the idea of me actually trying to figure out what was going on. So, like, I yeah. didn't really that was my first sort of opinion on it when it came out in the cinema and that's why um me and Phil actually put that like we put it up on a, like an insta story and that's whenever Corey got to me and that also uh, our friend philip crawford sent me a message too also saying what he thought about the film and it all was sort of similar we all came in you said yourself Corey, that you sort of didn't really like it that much um but you went and seen it it wasn't all bad, basically. But I agreed with what Corey said in that regard. I was like, I came out of it and I wanted to learn more about it. But I certainly wasn't going to turn around and be like, I need to get another ticket for that and go back to the cinema and watch it again. I was never going to do that. I didn't think it was worth my time or money. And so when it came to other people talking to me about Tenant and asking me, what did I think of it? I would turn around and say, I would say go, but just know that it, you are going to see the customer own film. It can be a little bit complicated. So I knew that going into the film. Um, so that didn't really bother me that much. But it was just, it was so complex that I think even the people that are fans of Christopher Nolan literally turned around and said to themselves, this wasn't great. This is really difficult to work out. I think he came out and he said that he really stood by um, the soundtrack. He said that it was a decision that he made himself and said that it was perfect he thought it was brilliant and ready to go and he actually agreed that you know he likes having these things loud as you said mark he likes having that um intensity in a scenes to make you more on the edge of your seat but the problem there is that people couldn't understand the key points or elements of the plot and that's what sort of ruined it for everybody was people were really struggling and really trying hard to find out what it was all about but it just nothing they weren't getting anything from it so i i I wouldn't i wouldn't say i hate it the film and i wouldn't say that it was an awful or bad film there's parts of it that i really really enjoyed especially the the time travel bits that i thought some of the the work that was put into it was brilliant unbelievable i loved that aspect of of knowing films and sort of you sit there and you go wow what is this what's going on but uh, in terms of the story plot and trying to figure out what was going on it really, it just defeated it for me. I couldn't, I didn't want to watch it again. I don't think I will watch it again, actually. Yeah. Mm. Probably maybe watch it if it, um, if I get a DVD or if it comes on the likes of Netflix or HBO Max or something. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, going back to cinemas again, if that was the option, I probably wouldn't. You know, I was so far away from even understanding most of the film that, you know, I didn't even want to go back and be like, I mean, there's no way I'm going to go back and understand 80% more of the film the next time around, I don't think. Um, you know, and I do understand in films having like 10 to 20% of the film that you don't catch the first time round. Yeah. Um, like, but if it's more than half the film you don't catch the first time round, I think you've got a problem there. If You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to get people going back if they didn't understand half the film. But as you said, Matthew, there are some good parts in it and there are parts I did like as well. Um, I particularly like the fight scene between John David Washington's character and the, you know, the hand-to-hand combat with the backwards, um, the helmet on and stuff. It was this unknown um, 
soldier, yeah, a person basically that he was kind of fighting backwards, and you weren't sure who that was, and then you find out later in the film that that was him, just yeah. at an earlier time or later time. Um, like I thought that was really, really neatly done, and I'd never seen anything like that in in yeah. cinema ever before, which is like a backwards, a forwards and backwards fighting person going on or like fight going on. I thought that was really, really clever. And even elements of it to do with, you know, where there was the car crash. I didn't think the chase scene in the car was that great. I thought that could have been better. I mean, I know a lot of people did like it, but I like the bit where um, where he ends up crashing and then he almost suffers from hypothermia from the explosion, which is to do with the science behind this, which is like entropy that's being swapped, which is like energy or something. And therefore instead of it being really, really high levels of entropy or something like that there, it's reversed to really low and therefore he freezes instead of burning alive. So I thought, you know, there's cool ideas there. Absolutely. I agree with you totally. I think, I think that the, those bits where you've seen that stuff happening and <clears throat> the soldier turned out to be who it was, that was great because at that point, you felt like you were getting something from this film. At that point, you felt like, oh, I just understand. I can understand that now. Because yeah. it was brought to the conclusion. So you, you, you've seen something meeting and coming together. So that's sort of holding it for me when I was watching it. I was I enjoyed that because I was like, ah, right, okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? They're, they're coming together now. This has started at the beginning of the film. It's come towards the end. It's all coming together now. <clears throat> and then the last thing happened, and then I have no idea what happened. I just, I just lost all knowledge everything when i don't but i will tell you this and i only figured it out the other day is the tenant logo do you know what that means because i figured it out the other day i read about this but i've forgotten so it's basically at the last scene they two sides have 10 minutes so it's 10 and 10 <laughs> which i only figured out the other day and even at that i was still like yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, reaction I mean, it's wee things like that, and then the thing that you know, Ross, you mentioned about the um, the fact you had all that, like all that's good, like that's interesting. Yeah. For, it's interesting for the IMDb trivia page, but it, you know, it doesn't help a film. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it doesn't make a good movie. No, I think he missed a trick on character as well. And um, this is one thing about. So I'm quite like Mark, probably not as much of a big Nolan fan as Mark, but I love his films. But since Tenet came out, there's been a lot of talk online and stuff that I didn't notice is about how poor a lot of his characters are written in previous yeah. movies as well, which I never had really picked up on. Um, and, but the characters in, in, in Tenet, are, like the fact that the main character is called the protagonist, like that just doesn't sit right with me whatsoever. Um, just, you know, you need to give some sort of strength to your character, especially someone who's like a... James Bond-esque ripoff. He needs to have a little bit of heart or backstory. And give them a name for, you know, it didn't really add anything just to call him the protagonist. Like mm -hmm. it works in um, Reservoir Dogs when they're all just like Mr. Green, Mr. Red, Mr. White. Mm -hmm. Like in something like this, you need to give a bit of, a get bit of meat on the bones. John David Washington. Um, I did think Robert Patterson played his role really well. Um, mm -hmm. Kenneth Branagh, I just, he was like a, typical bad guy is his motives i didn't think were very strong it just seemed way too over the top why he wanted to destroy the world i agree with you on that completely yeah i would agree i, I didn't like Sator as as a villain and i don't think it was kind of brana's fault necessarily no, no. i think it's probably more christopher nolan's fault there because 
clearly he's told Kenneth Branagh, right, I want you to do like an over-the-top Russian uh, mafia-style character here. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that, you know, I, ju I just don't think that worked. You know, Kenneth Branagh has been given that direction, I assume, or... Well, maybe maybe it's a joint effort, I suppose, but yeah, it just didn't work. I think it's too cliche in this uh, in this uh, genre of like a James Bond ripoff with a like a Russian uh, villain. You know, it's been done before. No, I also think it maybe was missing um, Hans Zimmer. I think that might have made my enjoyment of the film slightly better. Um, I by no I by no means I I think Ludwig Göransson, fantastic composer, he did really well in The Mandalorian and. Um, Black Panther's soundtrack's pretty good as well, but I just don't think there was anything too memorable about the music, which is normally quite a big factor of, if you think of The Dark Knight or um, Inception's probably the big one. I think that they did miss Hans Zimmer in this one, and I think that Nolan himself wanted them. Um, in saying that, but I do think that the soundtrack is decent. I don't think it's it's not awful. It's really good. It's not, in places, it was just the sound mixing. And that's what I'll bring it down to. I think that in the end, you can have a really good soundtrack, but if it's overbearing and it's taking over plot points, uh, key plot points, things that you need to know about, that you need to hear, then it's it's useless. The scenes are useless. You can't have scenes and have an overbearing soundtrack over the top of them and then expect people to, to turn around and be like, I'm going to watch this whole film now totally intrigued people would be turned off by that completely not want to know what's going on and i just think that he's really i would have wished that no one actually came out and said maybe in this particular project of his that maybe that was the one thing that he could have worked on better but he didn't he sort of just said oh, do you want i actually think it worked well and that's what i wanted but clearly for a lot of people it didn't work you were saying matthew about um kind of like knowing you know Make, he's the one who's making all these choices and I think I was saying this to Corey the other day about and I think I'm experiencing something quite similar with Better Call Saul and Vince Gilligan that the best directors out there you know when you look at their biggest successes generally speaking it's before they become gigantic and I think part of it is because of that it's the relationship and the team that put that film together Yes, of course, the director is the biggest part of that, but you still have, you know, the studio helps bring it together. There's a studio voice. And normally I would say there's probably a bigger problem of studios intervening too much on projects and films. But at the same time, I think studios can be very vital in reining back sometimes directors who maybe don't realize when they're going too far in certain directions. And, you know, if you think of, Christopher Nolan's biggest hits, probably The Dark Knight and Inception. That was when he was just taken off. And pretty much after that, he probably was given total free range. I mean, it's pretty much known in Hollywood. If there's a director out there who's got the most carte blanche to work with, it's Christopher Nolan. And sometimes having entire power, I'm not sure, is the right way forward. And that really the thing that made the magic to begin with in his older films was him and his relationship with the other team around him so i think moving forward warner brothers and christopher nolan should start to maybe go right let's maybe bring on a few people in the studio that have worked with christopher nolan let's you know not give you entire carte blanche let's you know work together kind of um for the next one and i hope christopher nolan learns from this as well and isn't arrogant enough to go well they just didn't get it let's move on to the next one 
you know, I hope he kind of goes right. Maybe I've went a bit far on this one because this is really the first time he's had pretty pretty mediocre to bad reviews on a film. Yeah, well, he had he had sort of similar ones with Inception too, but Inception was critically acclaimed, more or less, I think. But I read reviews of Inception. I've seen many people that have turned around and said, I don't know what's going on. This film's convoluted, blah, blah, blah. Best thing about Inception is that it comes to an end. It comes to a point where it's sort of, you do you understand what's going on? Um, Game with Tenant, I just feel like when we came to the end of that, that last scene was just something that really needed cleared up. Um, and well, in some way it wasn't. On the I mean, note of the final scene, did I? it totally bypassed me as to what that final scene was about. I think I'd checked out of the film by then. I was like, no, nope, hurt my brain too much. Yeah. By the end, I was like, this is just a load of words. Um, but then looking back on it, I think anyone who really has like dissected this film has said that that's the bit that makes it is that final scene with Neil and the protagonist. I watched it. I've actually seen um, somebody do a reconstruction on YouTube about how it plays out um, because at the time he, the protagonist reaches the gate and there's already a body inside this gate. Um, so I watched it back and it turns out that it's um, spoilers for anybody who's listening, but it's Neil. turns out that he's already there and that he was there for quite a long time. Um, ready for the moment to jump up and stop this bomb from happening. And so then at the end, you have that scene with the protagonist and Neil talking, and Neil's almost making out that um, this is only the beginning. We'll have a lot more time spent or something talking to each other. But I don't know. Again, I liked it, and I loved Robert Pattinson's character, and I loved the protagonist. Again, I agree with you, Corey, that whole thing with not being able to give him a name. It hurts character development for those characters. I just, you want it more from it in terms of the character development. I want it more from it, and I didn't get that. And so the ending for me was sort of just naff. I didn't, I didn't really understand it. And I don't like it when filmmakers sort of say, well, it's your fault if you didn't like it because you didn't understand it. That's you have a film here, you've made this film, it's your um, your idea, you have to make it, trans. you sort of have to transgress it to your audience, you have to make it known to your audience, otherwise you're just, people are just going to look at it as an art film that nobody really cares about, and you can't have it. Especially when you've got a, a £200 million budget yeah. to it, like you need the majority of audiences to get on board with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, the Neil bit as well, I think I remember that final scene you were saying about Matthew. Isn't there something about that Neil has, he he basically reveals enough to, to basically suggest that him and the protagonist have known each other for years. Yes. But the protagonist mm-hmm. doesn't know it yet. Or, yeah. or And then Neil's about to go and die or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, I don't know. So that pretty much what's going to happen is the protagonist, as he goes on through life, will, I think, continue meeting him? Or is it the other way around that he's... So I will interject with this as I've been following along on Wikipedia, trying to figure (laughs) out what actually happened. We're all talking about this being the last scene, but it actually wasn't the last scene. I thought it was. I was like, I remember, because I guess this is, what, nearly a year, well, like six months ago or whatever, now I go, I've seen it. There's the bit that it doesn't end with that scene. It ends with him in the car 
yes. where he shoots that woman. And apparently, this is according to Wikipedia, and yes, spoilers, but I guess people know at this point, um, the protagonist, after killing this person, realizes that he is the mastermind behind Tenet. So I think the assumption is that we're all supposed to have figured out that he started Tenet, therefore he recruits Neil at some point. So that's why when Neil meets him at the start in like, is it India, or I think whenever Neil meets him at the very, very start in the bazaar, that he has already, he knows him from before. He's already, I don't know. That's, that's what it, <laughs> Wikipedia has said that, and I didn't get any of that. So... I think I get what you're saying, actually. I think no, I works. understand what you're saying because he does know a lot about the protagonist at that point when he's in India. And that's one of the things that I picked up on when I watched it was that he knew what he liked to drink and mm-hmm. he was talking about his dress and stuff like that. He, he could tell mm-hmm. that he'd obviously known about him before, but I had mm-hmm. no idea that that's... that's that was a, yeah, that was a... I, I literally just Wikipedia. I was like, oh, I'm going to have a wee read and just like catch myself up on things as we're talking here and i'm like wait what that was oh okay cool so there you go guys that's can explain thanks to the help of wikipedia so you're welcome i think it's great now now that i know that I'm exactly i know it yeah, completely yeah. changed the entire movie <laughs> well, now that i know that i actually go watch the film i actually enjoy it but you know again that's that's up to, for me, that's up to the director. He needs to put that out there and he should have maybe made the ending more conclusive so that people would know. And maybe people would have went back and actually watched it again because of that, like you say, anymore. And pause. So what we're going to do right now, um, just to break up the discussion a little bit more, is try something a little bit new by introducing a new segment onto the podcast itself. At the minute, as I'm sure you've all well aware, the world is currently in the midst of a global health pandemic which is obviously shaping the way we live our lives day to day. Now, among the many ramifications this is having for us, global travel has essentially ground to a halt. So what we thought, in a bid to maybe ease that sense of wanderlust that we all sort of have in the sense that we want to go and explore again, is take this opportunity to highlight some key moments in world cinema, giving a brief snapshot into cultures that unfortunately for the time being, we are momentarily unable to observe firsthand. With the current boom in talent in both in front of the screen with actors like Stephen Young and Ma Dong Suk, and behind it in the director's chair, Young Sang Ho and Bong Joon Ho come to mind, the criminally underrated Korean cinema scene is finally getting the global recognition it deserves. While significant international attention of the directors mentioned with critical hits such as Train de Busan and Parasite, respectively, the true arrival of the Korean new wave cinema came in the form of the 2003 Park Chan-wook film Old Boy. With breathtaking cinematography, most notably an increasingly brutal long-take fight sequence involving a very angry man with a hammer and a captivating central performance by Choi Min-sik, the movie exploded onto international scene with acclaim and audiences going wild to the point that the true mark of quality spawned a ridiculously pointless American remake directed by Spike Lee in 2013. However, 
rather than take this time to focus on an already internationally renowned movie that, judging by its presence in the top 100 movies on IMDb, I'd much rather shine a light on the first movie in the so-called Vengeance Trilogy in which Old Boy resides. That movie being the 2002 thriller Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. The movie, set in industrial Seoul at the start of the new millennium, stars Shin Ha-kyun as Ryu, a deaf, mute factory worker forced to take extreme measures to obtain a kidney for his ailing sister. Quickly running out of more traditional options, he sets about concocting a kidnapping plot that, predictably, goes awry pretty quickly, altering the course of his life and those around him forever. The film also stars Song Kang-hoo, known to many nowadays as the father of the duplicitous Kim family in Parasite, as a wealthy businessman whose fate becomes intertwined with Ryu as the story goes on. Rounding out the leads, we also have Bei Duna, known to modern audiences as a frequent collaborator and realistically a post-matrix muse of the Wachowskis, who stars as Ryu's morally grey, sometimes quite conniving, political activist of a girlfriend that further complicates the proceedings after they've caught up in the fray. At times, a depressingly bleak and sadistically violent film, this likely explains the film's lukewarm reception when it came out, as well as its subsequent upsurge as a cult hit in later years. Nevertheless, the movie provides a gripping ride throughout, elevated by its performances. Notably, Shin's Ryu perfectly captures both exhaustion and frustration at his predicament, just with the simplest movements of his face. The film combines this with a beautiful score and devastatingly bleak cinematography to truly make for a hidden gem. So, if you watched Parasite and you enjoyed it and wanted to dip your toe into a more realistic side of Korean cinema, sorry Okja and Snowpiercer, I love you, but maybe not for this, why not give Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance a try? Just make sure you have a bucket of ice cream, maybe some tissues, Maybe a hot water bottle, something, something to give you some sort of comfort after this is over, because you'll feel, you'll feel a little bit blue afterwards. So, at the time of this recording, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is available on Amazon Prime in the UK for purchase both on its own and as part of the Vengeance trilogy in physical formats and VOD worldwide. So, thanks for listening, guys. Like I said, this is a new segment for us. We want to see if it works, so... If any of you fancy us doing something like this again, please let us know and we'll make sure to take your comments on board. Now, back to the discussion. I suppose the last thing to say about it, and um, I think me and Mark have talked at length about this, but it would be a good thing to bring up on the podcast, is all the rumours before it was out about it being a sequel to Inception. Remember that, this whole thing? Uh, so the whole thing was the fact that, I think it mostly stemmed from the fact that Elizabeth DeBecky's character and Robert Patterson didn't have character names up until like a day or two before the film came out. So it was rumoured that them two were the, the Cobb's um, kids from Inception. And um, so the two kids at the end of Ince- at the end of Inception were going to be the, these two. I mean, it, they could very well have played adult versions of them and then it would have been the fact that it would have been all linked into the whole Inception storyline. It would have been a lot of work, but... Um, 
There's a couple of good YouTube videos on people just breaking down how it would work, but obviously it never happened. Yeah, and because I, I, yeah, Corey, I remember you saying about the the so their names weren't revealed, and I think even now they're just first names, so you don't even know their surname. Um, and on top of that, the uh, one of the other points that people suggested as to why it might be linked to Inception was because it had a two hundred million dollar budget, which is the most for an original action film there's ever been, or something like that. There, and uh, I mean, this is a bit of a loose. Uh, a loose suggestion but from the trailers and things they kind of said well the trailers do look like there's a decent bit of action going on but you don't have that big a cast this is the first time um christopher nolan i mean of course you have robert pattinson but john david washington was not a big star before this and he was the main lead and before now christopher nolan always picks like the very big top a level or sorry top a list actors in his films um, yeah, you can t tell uh, my teaching lingo is coming in here. Uh, <laughs> merging. Uh, yeah, so basically they were saying that, like, where's all this money going to? Because obviously he hasn't spent that much on the actors themselves. So they thought that maybe Leo DiCaprio would be brought in, basically. And that's where he had spent the last bit of the budget or something. This this is one thing I wanted to actually speak about. I totally forgot about it. Um, I think every before I watched the film, everybody tried to spoil this film for me like everybody like it was it was on google it was everywhere on facebook twitter people were wanting to spoil this for me big time and and then i kept seeing this thing i think it was maybe imax putting it out there this scene this airplane scene it was going to be the best scene ever like can't wait for you to see it and even in the trailer i'm pretty sure now that i've watched the trailer there was a bit right at the end of the trailer where it literally they talk about flying a plane into somewhere yeah i think underwhelming <laughs> i just literally didn't i went into it thinking that this scene was going to be like amazing you know i'm tapping cleona's shoulder and going yeah. where do you see this and even cleona turned around to me at that point and went is that it and i went yeah, i guess so <laughs> i think i think the big selling that was another thing because that was all practical effects. That was all a real plane, which is very impressive in terms of... Yes, I get that. However, from a filmmaking point of view, I will agree, it was very slow, kind of... It didn't really have any oomph to it, you know? It, wasn't, no. it, was, it was a cool scene, but it wasn't everything it was hyped up to be. For the idea of crashing a jumbo jet into a hangar in yeah. real life, sounded a lot cooler than it ended up being. So just looking forward on now that we've kind of talked about Tenant, I was just thinking, um, where do you think you see Christopher Nolan going next? What's his next project? And have you heard about this kind of uh, uh, brotherly fight that they've had, that he has had with Warner Brothers? I haven't heard about this fighting, but I'm guessing it's probably because of Tenant. <laughs> more than likely, it's probably because of Tenant. Because I think... Like I said earlier on, a lot of cinemas, not just the production company itself, but the cinemas were relying on Tenant to be the film that would bring people in and would be the blockbuster that people would really come in and see. And it maybe did well internationally, but I think that, that was the problem that even UK cinemas were actually closing down. That was the story that was put out after was like, these cinemas were having to close down because they weren't getting the business. Tenant wasn't bringing people in. 
Um, I don't think it's fair saying that tenant is the reason why people cinemas were getting closed down, but like it is a contributing factor to it because yeah. that film was made out to be an overhyped version of itself that maybe um, when people did see it, free word of mouth, people were saying, I wouldn't recommend you see that. Yeah. And it just sort of made it, I don't know, just it kind of ruined things in that regard, like for cinema. But um, he if he's having a fight with them, them, I wonder what it would be about. Like, he pushed for the for the cinemas to open as well. Like mm-hmm. um, I believe he he was a very big push behind all the cinemas, basically being like, "I want my film. I'll happily be the film to open things up." Um, and yeah, he was a big big advocate to getting them open. And I think the studios seem to be like, "Well, I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, it's our money at the end of the day. It's not yours." Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course it kind of didn't do the job it was meant to do from the looks of things. And now Warner Brothers have basically come out and said about, well, te- basically Christopher Nolan um, is not happy with the move that the Warner Brothers announced at the start of December, which is to release all their 2021 slate of films oh, yes. in cinemas and on HBO Max on the mm-hmm. same day, um, which again, I guess, hurts overall cinema, which um, Christopher Nolan's a very big advocate for cinema. And he wrote a very scathing uh, letter about the scenario that was very public as well. Um, did any of the rest of you see that letter? Yeah, I, I never you know, seen it. No, I don't know if I were if I were him after what had just happened with this movie, I would sort of keep my head down for a wee bit. Whether you feel a certain way about stuff or not, I would just be kind of like, right, well, I'm lucky to still have a no, I'm lucky to still have a job. That's maybe a bit extreme. But I wouldn't really sort of stick my head over the parapet and maybe let the fires die down a bit before it, I did that. But the production company would know themselves. No one is all about taking risks. His films are very risky anyway. He knows that. And the production company knew that. So you're probably that. I would say that's the reason why Warner Bros. are having to go at him because they're literally saying, listen, we relied on your film. We took the risk. We put it out there. And we didn't get what we thought we would get from it. So we, we've seen what your film's done. And now we're going to put it out in HBO Max. We're going to release it to the public. We're going to get our money back. And that's, I don't see anything wrong with that. And I don't, I see these people talking about how it's going to have an effect on film. For the period of time that we're in right now, it will probably have a slight but I tell you, you see, as soon as lockdown is open and people are able to go back into the city, people will be going to the cinema. There'll be a flock of people going to the cinema. I don't think it'll really affect cinema that much. I think companies are made these films and they want the money and they need to put it out there for consumption. They need that. And so do the people. The people will be buying it anyway. No one's going to not do it. So I, I don't see a problem with that. I think it's actually a good thing. I think people want more content. We are continually watching films at the minute that we've probably seen about 20 odd times um so i don't i don't see the problem with them releasing these new films on hbo max or on a subscription service i think fair play to them you know they need to make money and people are willing to spend that money yeah i'm starting to come around to your idea more and more i think you know and a lot of other studios seem to be doing the same disney's kind of doing the same with disney plus mark to answer your question about what, what he's going to do next i think you need i was just looking through his films there and checking what um writing credits now there's been like inception i think and interstellar he was the sole writer on them but going back to the dark knight when he had like 
His brother, he had his brother Jonathan Nolan helping out as well, and David S. Goyer. I think he needs to go back to that direction. Get a couple more people in the writers' room with himself, and you know, put out something a bit better. You know, work on the story before he like works on the bloody movie. You know. Do you think then, if he is gonna, if Christopher Nolan uh, is gonna try and bring back more writers as well, do you think that's going to be with Warner Brothers, given the fallout that's happened? Because he did quote, like he said some really horrible things in that letter. Like he said. Now, I think a lot of it was standing up for other directors, but he said um, it's not nice to wake up, uh, to, to go to bed working for the best studio and wake up to working for the worst streaming service. He can't, he can't come out and say things like that, right? Like he, what's stopping Nolan from turning around and going and making an art film with him and it being really good? Like nothing's stopping him. I don't understand. Like I don't think, I really don't think that because they've released these films on HBO Max that it'll tarnish any director's line of work I, I really don't think so i think he's being really like a wee bit childish to be honest i think it's like there's no there's an arrogance that. set in there i think somebody's got like i not ideas above himself he's obviously very successful and everything else but i definitely think there's maybe an element where he knows he's the golden child of that studio so he thinks he has some more liberties than he probably should do that point there you're saying about the golden child you could also say i'm not saying you're wrong on that there probably is a bit of arrogance you could also say that he has, he's big enough and powerful enough to, to voice other people's opinions. If other directors were to say it, they'll not get another project because they're not big enough. Christopher Nolan can actually get away with it, probably. So there's an argument to be had that he's helping the voice of other people that are smaller. Because apparently sure. the other directors were not happy about it either. Like um, the guys doing Suicide Squads and Denis Villeneuve, they were absolutely raging about it. And I think Denis Villeneuve put out an article as well. Was this, was this to do with June? Is yeah, because that's going to be one of the films that could be on HBO Max along with cinema release. Again, they don't really have much of a choice. Like these production companies need their money; they need to be earning money. And I think at the minute, it seems like the right choice to make. People will be crying out for cinema. People will be crying out for films. I don't, um, I don't think it would tarnish a director's reputation. I don't think it would. I just want to know what the their main point is. Like, what are they really angry about? Like, what's? I th I think part of it is at that time when they said it, there. So directors would have back end deals, the bigger ones. So mm. they would have like a certain slice of the profits would go to them. But if it's not, if it's if 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 you're basically halving your profits because you're releasing it on the streaming service at the same time as cinema, that means they're not going to make as much profits, which means not as much money will go to the director. Oh, right, okay. Apparently, now I'd need to double check this, since then, I think Warner Brothers have come out and made a deal and said, look, we will give you a predictor. Yeah. We'll give you what that, you want. What that would, would be, that would be fair. Like, if, if that's what they were going to do, that would be fair. But if, I guess directors in that regard, they will have to, like, put their points across. So if that's the reason why, then fair play to them. Like, if that's what they want to do and they have to make sure that they're also getting their rightful intake of the profits, then go ahead. But I don't think it'll tarnish the reputation. I don't think it'll tarnish Denny Villeneuve. His films are probably, some of, some of his films that he's released over the last 10 years are probably one of my favorite films, Prisoners, uh, Arrival. Um, you know, these these films, he will, he will continue on making great films after June. Like, it's not gonna affect him in a bad way, I don't think so. Do you think, uh, so do you think Christopher Nolan will make another Warner Brothers film or will he go to another studio? 
I, I personally don't think it'll have much effect on any of the films. I think yeah, I, I, I think I, the studio, well, the studio, as we've really talked, the studio doesn't really have much involvement, I think, in his own creative process. Like, a Nolan film's a Nolan film because of his team he puts together. But, so I think whoever gives him the most money, he'll go to whoever gives him the most money. And, and Warner Brothers were the ones giving him the most money. Like, Netflix threw out a couple of Bob for him. I'm sure you jump on that boat right away. You know, I, well, you know, maybe he doesn't, maybe he has a chip on the shoulder about streaming services, so, you know, he might not go to Netflix, but I think anyone asks him nice enough, he'll go, and I think you'd make a film in the same vein that he made any of his films before. You know, I don't think he'll, he'll go to another studio and it could be a, it will be as good or as, you know, controversial is probably the best word to use. <laughs> So I interrupt our regular broadcast to bring you a new segment of the Film Frequency podcast titled Under the Radar. Each week one of us will highlight either an independent feature, a film that didn't gain much success, or a film that we felt deserved a higher critique than it received. On this week's Under the Radar, I'll be focusing on Trey Edward Schultz's 2019 film, Waves. The film follows the four members of South Florida-based Williams family as they deal with personal dramas, both big and small. The family consists of high school teens Tyler, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., and Emily, played by Taylor Russell, parents Ronald, played by Sterling K. Brown, and Catherine, played by Rennie Elise Goldsberry. Elsewhere in the cast we have Lucas Hedges as Emily's boyfriend Luke and Alexa Demi as Tyler's boyfriend Alexis. As a whole the narrative waves is set up like a simple family drama following key moments of each family member and the effect their actions have on each other. We begin with Tyler, a member of the high school wrestling team who's being pushed mentally and physically by his father to be the best that he can be. However, after a career-threatening injury, which Tyler chooses to ignore, his emotional state begins to crumble as he begins to realise his hopes, dreams and heightened ideals of masculinity begin to slip from his grasp. Most of Tyler's drive comes from the push from his father. We are not afforded the luxury of being average, says Dad Ronald in one scene. This continued encouragement pushes Tyler towards a very literal breaking point, where his injury finally gets the better of him during an intense wrestling match. Tyler's lifestyle goes from bad to worse as his relationship with Alexis crumbles after an unplanned pregnancy. Now uh, unable to lift more than even a few pounds of weight, he turns to prescription medication, drugs and alcohol to numb his pain. This degradation of character coalesces in a moment of tragedy when Tyler commits an unspeakable act that will change the course of his life forever. At halfway point through waves, the focus moves on to Emily, the high energy of the first half giving more way to a more calmer, more meditative observation of how she deals with the aftermath of earlier events. We follow her through the first few weeks of her relationship with Luke, as they get to know each other through a variety of awkward teen conversations, performed brilliantly by Taylor Russell and Lucas Hedges. While we only get one extremely intense conversation highlighting the strain between parents Ronald and Catherine, there's a heart-wrenching scene between Emily and her father as they go fishing. Ronald, disappointed at his lack of connection with his daughter, breaks down in tears as he opens up about the friction with her mother and their failing business. Emily, on the other hand, opens up about how she could have changed the actions of her brother and her regrets of the past. This scene is probably the best performed of the entire film and displays the acting prowess of both Taylor Russell and Sterling K. Brown. The final half hour sees Emily journey with Luke on a road trip to visit Luke's estranged dying father. The film takes on a more ethereal quality at this point, with multiple moments of montage pushing the story towards its conclusion. Luke's reconnection with his father is a poignant bookend to the intensity of the Williams family storyline, allowing Emily to focus on someone else's issues, but also shows how those issues relate to her own relationship with her own estranged family. 
While the story of Waves kept me hooked throughout, it was the technical qualities of the movie that really had me impressed. Drew Daniels' cinematography helps keep the film moving in perfect rhythm. From the wonderful rotation shots at the beginning to the impressive flowing tracking shots, the camera work follows the action at times unobtrusively, whereas at other moments it very much influences certain scenes. Another facet of the film I loved was the shifting aspect ratio throughout the runtime. The changing shape of the screen, from full screen to letterbox to 4-3 and back again, it matches the big emotional moments in both Tyler and Emily's journey. The photography of the film was also extremely synonymous with the film's score. Composed by legendary duo Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, the rhythmic ambience cut together by editor Isaac Hay helps keep the tempo moving at a steady pace. Furthermore, the film is strengthened by the outstanding soundtrack from artists such as Frank Ocean, Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West and Radiohead. The final moments of Waves are soundtracked by the music of Alabama Shake's song, Sound and Colour. Two words that perfectly describe what I loved about this film. The sound design, camera work, score and colour grade are simply sublime. If you're looking for a heart-wrenching family drama with a brilliant cast and a technically gifted crew on top form, I would without a doubt recommend Trey Edward Schultz's Waves. At the moment of recording, Waves is available to watch on Now TV, part of uh, Sky, and it's also available on Blu-ray and DVD. Now let's return to our discussion with Matthew Hamilton. Yeah, so we had decided we've decided to kind of ask like three similar questions to um, all of our guests we have on the show. Um, yeah, the first one was an unpopular film opinion. Do you think deserves more credit than what it got? Opinion not shared by the masses. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I can't stand it. I think it's it was one of those films that was hyped up. To be Quentin Tarantino was one of his best films yet. It was going to blow your head away, and I went and seen it, and I was bored. I watched it, and I literally sat there, and I thought, I could have went and seen something else here. I really could have. I didn't need to spend my money on this. There's a lot of filler. There's a lot of talking in it that's unnecessary. There's a lot of times where I sat there looking at it and thinking, I'm getting nothing out of this here. I'm, I'm getting nothing. I do like what he did at the end, sort of like a little happy ending thing. Yeah. I get that. That's great. But I can't sit there for about an hour to listen to Leonardo crying about not getting an acting job. I'm sorry, but you cannot tell me that that is absolutely amazing cinema. I love. Don't get me wrong. There's some bits in it that are great, right? The, the cinematic aspect of filming and him being in several different films and doing going across the sea and doing films in Italy and, and all that, like I love that. That's, that was kind of cool. I liked that. But again, these filler bits where people were not, people were just talking and talking for ages and it was just a waste of time. I just didn't understand. Like I'd rather have watched an, an older film. I would have rather watched Jackie Brown than watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I love Jackie Bryan. I think Jackie Bryan's one of his best films. Wow. That is controversial. <laughs> but see, this is the thing. A lot of people love it. And then I ask them, and they turn around and they're just like, it's just great. Like, <laughs> what? Why is it great? Why is it great? I need to know why. I, I just don't think it's great. I think it's... I mean, it was nice having you on tonight, Matthew. Um... <laughs> <laughs> see, see. Yeah, yeah. See you, Phil. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right we'll move on to the second question um the second one was the favorite thing about cinema so what is it about cinema that you like i mean this is quite a this could be a quite general question or you know you could get into nitty-gritty 
I love Maison Saint. Maison Saint. I love all that stuff. I love um, because that's how you know a director really believes in his project. I think is when you see the amount of effort that he puts into the background and what he does. Um, I just for, for one of those things I have said it loads of times that Alfred Hitchcock in that regard was one of the best um, auteur directors. He was brilliant at doing that sort of stuff. Um, so I think. That's where it sort of stemmed from was my watching these films and seeing how much effort he would put into to the background and the lighting and what he would do to sort of um, almost give you, without you maybe even knowing about it, a complete background on a character, character development by just literally putting pictures in in the background. Stuff like that, that really, I love that sort of stuff in cinema, I love that. It's just one of the reasons why I like Tarantino and his films. He does it very well in Death Proof. Um, his own references to um, Kurt Russell's films that he also loves, like um, Big Trouble in Little China. You have the the vest he the Kurt Russell wore is stapled to the wall, stuff like that. I I love that. I think that's something you you go to a cinema and you see all this stuff and you think, oh, that's that's brilliant. This is why we're here. We're here watching it on a big screen. I love that sort of stuff. So that's one of the big reasons why. Oh, cool. Lovely. And our final question is, uh, the one film, the rule, all films, if you could select one? That's a really tough question. Yeah, I ain't going to say, it's probably not agree with me, but I say Vertigo. Vertigo is one of my favourite films of all time. I think it's um, a lot of genres sort of moulded into one massive thriller. I love the idea of how it sort of, sort of, like it's just in and out of these different genres and um, the idea of him falling in love with this person and also not really knowing who this person is and trying to figure out identify this idea of identity it gets played with a lot um, and just the way it's filmed is it's just brilliant and also the the, like I say, the maison scene with Hitchcock, it's it's unreal. There's scenes where I think Stuart, there's dream sequences, which I love, and then James Stuart walks into the room after I think he realises this woman he's seen off the street is the same woman that he's fallen in love with after seeing her die. And he brings her up, I think she's in this apartment, and there's a green neon sign just outside the apartment, and it's shining through the window, and onto her face and as he looks at her he realizes that it's her and it's just so well done it's it's it gives me like goosebumps when i think about it because i love that scene so much and i seen ages ago la la land did a similar i think referenced it because it was so, so well done where gosling sits beside emma emma stone's character and and the green neon light shines in through the window it's just it's one of my favourite films of all time. I think it's brilliant. The ending is ambiguous, but Hitchcock was well known for that. So again, that didn't really bother me. Um, the acting is brilliant. The cinematography is next to none. Um, and the one scene I vividly remember will be the scene where he sort of watches her go into this flower shop and he pe sort of peers around the store. That is also a mirror on the other side. And as he peers in, he sees this beautiful bouquet of flowers surrounding her in the middle. And it's all these vibrant colours all coming together. She's wearing this grey um, dress. And just they all compare and they contrast so well. 
and it just looks amazing and you can also see her mirrored reflection in the door that he's looking around which is just absolutely brilliant it's one of my favorite films and i've watched it about 20 odd times and i'll probably watch it tonight <laughs> no that's brilliant thanks very much they're, they're great answers great deep dive into some movies yeah matthew thank you so much for coming on it was great to hear your thoughts on Owen and then your own personal thoughts on other movies really appreciate it thank you very much for having me i really enjoyed it yep so that's it for this week um we'll be back in another couple of weeks with uh irish films uh a special on irish movies in the run-up for st patrick's day um I know I have a couple I want to chat about. My, I'll be honest, my Irish watch list isn't as high as it should be coming from this this island, but um, I'm quite interested to see what uh, Mark and Ross, what you guys have watched and you know what we're going to talk about. So that's it for this week's Film Frequency. I hope you enjoyed our first guest star and our analysis of Nolan's Tent. For more on Film Frequency, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Film Frequency and on Facebook and YouTube. Just search Film Frequency in the search bar. Until next time, have a brilliant week, stay safe and keep watching films.